You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we share archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. On this episode of Pathways with Joseph Campbell, we're listening to a November 7, 1965 lecture that Joseph Campbell presented at that venerable Manhattan institution, Cooper Union, and it's called The Impact of Science on Mythology. In case you haven't noticed, humans are perplexing creatures. On the one hand, it seems that we have an innate tendency toward empiricism. At the very least, we seem compelled to conduct proto-scientific examinations of the world because a persistent, troubling skepticism and apprehension underlies our experience of reality. And this apprehension, this skepticism, suggests that there is much more to life that something operates behind the material experience of the world as we understand it. Life is, in its cool objectivity, ultimately baffling and stubbornly impenetrable. We instinctively want to understand how and why things work as they do. There are ultimately only two paths to understanding. Either you know or you believe. Even children conduct their own scientific inquiries into the world, often by putting as much of the world as they can into their mouths. But like our earliest ancestors who were surely ingenious, competent, and skillful people, they don't yet have access to a collected body of research to which they can turn for explanations of more systematic experimentation on the world and a historical understanding of objectively defined problems. Without these resources, their hypotheses and conclusions about the world are confoundingly idiosyncratic and more obscuring than revealing. And the problem is that, lacking any awareness of the body of knowledge cataloged by science, the only alternative is belief. Our ancient ancestors lived in an a posteriori world in which all knowledge came from experience. Yet, lacking the theories and apparatus for a systemized search for truth, much of their experiences were erroneously attributed to gods, demons, miasmas, curses, or some such explanation. And they were often left with logical fallacies and belief. One sees the attraction of belief in that it seems to offer one the peace of mind of a priori knowledge, knowledge independent from experience, that allows one to predict effects from conditions, results from effort, and so on. One would naturally think that these two orientations would be antithetical to one another. But human beings seem to be quite capable of easily blending the two together in an uneasy marriage, as empiricism always seeks to update and refresh itself, while belief tends to calcify and become more and more immutable. I think that, like us, our earliest ancestors had to look upon their world with a mixture of awe and wonder, 
And just like us, the awe and wonder was probably leavened with a substantial dose of anxiety. Everything needed for survival was felicitously, almost magically present in the world. And with these resources so near at hand, thinking about and living in the world inevitably leads to a greater inclination to scientific thought. And how to make scientific thought work to make the world less strange, less alien, more comfortable, and more manageable. An offshoot of this epistemic evolution is technology. Throughout human history, there have been people who recognize that we can imagine the world differently than the way it appears to our senses. And these people set about transforming the world to resemble its imagined potential. Transforming the world from its objective presentation into the world pictured in our minds requires the application of technology. Technology is certainly based on science, but technology pays little attention to the scientific quest for truth and focuses instead on mitigating the burdens that life places upon human beings. The word technology is derived from the Greek word techne, which means art or craft. And of course, to see the world artfully is to imagine it differently from what it is. Yet, simultaneously, that imaginal vision brings one closer to its essence. As Picasso reportedly said, art is a lie that makes us realize truth. Early humans presumably thought their symbols and metaphors, their mythologies, were literal truths. In fact, their mythologies were not merely stories. They were narrative technologies, technologies employed to mitigate the horrific realities of life and make it more genially disposed to human beings. Belief makes it appear that the conditions of life may be open to some form of alteration or propitiation, establishing a kind of quid pro quo relationship between human beings and the elemental forces swirling about us. The ability to imagine and personify elemental forces, to imagine expository narratives that explain inexplicable phenomena, is one of the most powerfully transformative acts of which human beings are capable. This feature of human nature is so potent, so robust, that it needs to be balanced by the objective, truth-seeking impulse of science because this ability to see what is not there leads to both mind-boggling innovation and invention and preposterous, dreadful delusions and beliefs. With this in mind, I think you'll enjoy Joseph Campbell's 1965 Cooper Union Lecture on the Impact of Science on Mythology. And immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks and talk about some of the important and interesting ideas from the lecture. And now, here's Joseph Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, the other day when sitting at a lunch counter that I like to go to, a little boy about 12 years old came in and sat beside me with his school satchel. And beside him was a still younger gentleman of learning, about six, holding his mother by the hand. And they sat on the counter beside me. And while he was waiting for his order to be filled, 
my little companion said. In class today, Jimmy wrote a paper on the evolution of man. <laughs> and the teacher told him he was wrong, that Adam and Eve were the first parents. The lady, two seats away, said, the well, teacher was right. The little boy said, and for this I was going to recommend him for a medal and granting aid. He said, yes, I know, but this was a scientific paper. <laughs> the mother, two seats away, came back and said, yes, but those are only theories. And the little boy was up to that one, too. He said, yes, but they have been factualized. <laughs> they found the bones. Well, I thought, this is great. But what a teacher. Now let us try to remember for a moment the wonderful world image that is being destroyed, that is being dissolved, that is disappearing under the impacts of the thoughts of little boys like this. In the great works of the 12th and 13th century, the earth was the center of the universe. There were two views of the earth. One, the popular view, saw it as a flat surface, like a dish, surrounded by an ocean, a cosmic ocean, in which demonic beings existed that were dangerous to man. This is an infinitely old notion about the universe. But there was a more sophisticated notion than this, namely that of Ptolemy, of the Earth as a sphere, surrounded by seven crystalline spheres, in each of which there was a planet. The planets and spheres after which the seven days of the week are named. The Moon and Sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And each of these sang a song. This was the music of the spheres. They were angels. These were angelic living spheres surrounding the universe. And beyond this, there was the great heavenly realm where God sat on his throne. And when the soul of man came down into birth, it passed through these seven spheres and picked up at each an element. There were seven elements associated with the seven spheres. And so our body is a compound of the elements of the universe, and it sings the same song, so to say. And the society of the Middle Ages was itself a rendition on Earth of the imagery of those seven spheres. The entity of the king, the entity of the Pope. These represented 
agents of the divine powers. And the society was arranged in a hieratic way, as it were, following the order of the angels and the angelic choirs who sang in the heavens. And in this image, there was felt to be a perfect accord between the shape and form of the universe, the well-being of the individual, and the order of society. So that by following the laws of the society and doing as he was told, the individual both was in accord with the order of the universe and with his own inward order. And then when death came, he passed readily through those spheres again to the heavenly realm. And you know how Dante developed this image in the Divine Comedy in perfect harmony with the ideas of his time. When Satan had been flung out of heaven for his disobedience and pride, he came like a great flaming comet, Lucifer, and struck the earth and drove right through to the center. And that area that he struck, that great trench to the center, is hell. And what was driven forth the other side is the mountain of purgatory. And it was supposed that the whole southern hemisphere was an ocean with the mountain of purgatory, what now would be called the South Pole. And on the summit of this mountain of purgatory was paradise, the garden from which the four rivers flow in the four directions. Well, now it's a curious fact. But when Columbus set sail for the lands beyond the surrounding ocean, he had the image of Dante's world in mind, and he writes of this in his journal. And when he reached the mainland or the islands of the Indies, he turned southward and he reached the shore, I think this was on his third voyage, of South America. And as he was passing between Trinidad and the shore of South America, he noticed that the quantity of fresh water mixed with the salt was simply enormous. The river Orinoco, this enormous river such as no European had ever seen, was pouring great quantities of fresh water into the ocean, and Columbus thought that this must have been one of the four rivers of paradise coming from the mountain of paradise in the southern hemisphere. And he noticed when his boat sailed northward that it went more swiftly than it had gone when it was sailing southward. And he says, this is because we were coasting downhill from this promontory of the great mountain. Now I take the year 1492 as the year of the end of the old myth. Here was punctured the old idea of the mythological geography. Shortly after Columbus's day, Magellan sailed around the world. Shortly before Vasco da Gama had sailed around Africa. The world was being explored. St. Thomas Aquinas, writing of paradise in the 13th century said, the reason people have not found paradise is that it is beyond the great seas. 
or beyond great mountains, and people haven't come to it yet. It was literally thought that the notion of the earth in the Bible was literally true. Some 50 years after Columbus's shattering or beginning to shatter of the mythological geography of the Middle Ages, Copernicus published his paper on the heliocentric universe, placing not the earth, but the sun in the center of the universe. And some 60 years after that, Galileo's telescope, puny little telescope, verified this situation. And you know that Galileo was condemned by the Holy Inquisition. He was condemned for holding and teaching a theory that was contrary to scripture, just as the little boy beside me, the year 1961, was condemned by his mother for the same fault. This was a very solemn condemnation. Galileo was declared to be teaching false doctrine because his facts were contrary to scripture. And I think what we now would say, would have to say would be that scripture cannot be true since it does not agree with the facts. That is to say, the position is reversed. Galileo's telescope was followed by many larger. And today we have these glorious eyes on, for instance, Mount Wilson Observatory. And not only is the sun the center of our little planetary cluster. The sun is but one of 200 billion stars in a galaxy shaped like a great lens with hundreds of thousands of light years distances from one to the other side. And not only that, but these telescopes now are finding in the midst of these numerous stars galaxies, that is to say nebulae, which are further galaxies, more and more, thousands and thousands. So that actually the religious experience of awe before the universe, which the medieval picture was supposed to communicate, is transcended billions of times by the image that modern science is presenting to us. One might say, it is a far more magnitudinous revelation than anything the pre-scientific world possibly could have conceived of. And the little story in Genesis seems a kindergarten tale in comparison. Similarly, the old history has fallen apart. Not only the cosmos of the scripture, but the history. Already Sir Walter Raleigh, who was a great mariner, observed when he reached the American shores, the number of the animals here, the new species that had never been named before in the old world. And he thought, well, how could you have fit these into the ark? And uh, it was already obvious that the story of the flood was a mere myth, that is to say, a theory that could not be factualized. 
Further, the sort of view of human history that Darwin's evolutionary theory opened up puts the origins of mankind hundreds of thousands of years back. We now date the first hominids at the time of the first glacial period, perhaps 600,000 or some date at 1 million BC. And again, the little story in scripture has collapsed. There was no flood. There was no universal flood. And if we reckon the first hominids as the first man, his son did not build the first cities. The first cities were not built for another 600,000 years. So again, there's a little kindergarten story there that the magnitude of the modern scientific view has simply rendered childish. The experience of awe before the wonder of mankind is now something far greater than anything that the first book of the Bible can give us. Still further problems arose with the findings of archaeology. For example, the period in Egyptian history that is supposed to have been that of the Exodus is one very well documented in Egyptian texts, the period of Ramses II and Merneptah. There's no record anywhere of those seven plagues. There's no record anywhere of anything even comparable. And the Pharaoh, who is supposed to have been drowned with his army in the Red Sea, we have his mummy not at the bottom of the Red Sea at all. The texts in which these stories appear have been analyzed. They're found to have been extremely late. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible were edited together of num a number of manuscripts as late as the third century BC. And these documents date from about the ninth century to about the third. One notices, for instance, that there are two accounts of the flood in the Bible. The editor was not too careful, you might say. In one, Noah is told to bring into the ark two animals of every kind. In the other, he is told to bring seven pair of every clean and two of every unclean beast. Similarly, there are two stories of creation, the one in chapter two and the one in chapter one. In chapter two, man is created, then the plants, then the animals, and then Eve is drawn from his rib. In chapter one, first, God says, let there be light and so forth, and we have the seven days, the animals and so forth, and man and woman are created simultaneously. These are two stories. The story in chapter one dates from about the third century, the story in chapter two dates from about the ninth. Moreover, comparative mythology and anthropology have shown that comparable stories appear all over the world. When Cortez arrived in Mexico, he and his company who had come, among other things, to carry the faith, the cross, and the one true religion, found 
so many parallels to their own belief among the Aztecs that they were hard put to explain it. Here were great temples representing the spheres of the universe, like the medieval mountain of purgatory. There were 13 heavens with choirs of angels, nine hells filled with demons. And there was a deity, Quetzalcoatl, whose symbol was the cross and who died and was to be resurrected. The Padres invented two theories to explain this phenomenon. One theory was that St. Thomas, the apostle to the Indies, had reached the American shores and had preached the gospel. But that being so far removed from the center of truth, namely Rome, the doctrine deteriorated and what they were observing was a degenerate development of their own teaching. The other theory that was proposed by many, many of the serious thinkers was that the devil was throwing up parodies of the Christian teaching in order to frustrate the mission. There were stories of the virgin birth, of death and resurrection, and the whole um, treasury of motifs. Furthermore, when in the 19th century, systematic studies were made of the religions and mythologies of mankind throughout the world, innumerable parallels were found. China, the Buddhist heavens and hells, India with the Hindu heavens and hells and purgatories, and then looking back into the deeper, darker backgrounds, ancient Egypt had its stories of like kind the mythology of Osiris is actually a model for the uh, mythology of the Christ. Now, in each of these cases, each of these great civilizations regarded itself as the center of the universe. Regarded the barbarians or Gentiles as aliens in God's domain regarded themselves as the bearers of the mandate so that we have a number of symbolic centers representing the center of things. And in the modern world, these are being smashed along with that wonderful image of the medieval universe. Now, this is a very serious affair. It is serious because these symbolic worlds were the supports of the civilizations, of the moralities of the civilizations, of the self-confidence of the civilizations, of the vitality and creative power of the civilizations. And with the cutting down, the frustrating of the self-confidence that derives from images of this kind, there is a disequilibrium within the society itself. And everyone is challenged in his loyalty. Are you going to be loyal to the tradition, to the form, to the morality and myth of your society? Or are you going to be loyal to truth? 
They are two different things. This is the problem in teaching. This is the problem in bringing up your children. This is the problem that was beside me there at the lunch counter. The parents, the teachers in those cases, were on the side of society, of the past, of what has been achieved. And I think one could say that it is the tendency of society in general to take the position of reasserting its authority even against the truth. Societies that have chosen this pattern, they are the more numerous in the world. They are distinguished by inquisitions, liquidations, annihilations of all who speak out the truth. This is a crucial problem. And one just has to know how far the truth goes. One has to realize how far it goes in shattering. It shatters the whole thing. The myths are myths from top to bottom. They are, in terms of the fact world, untrue. And there is another science that has come to play on this theme. And this is the science of psychology. There's been a wonderful, extremely interesting development in the past 40 years in the attitude of psychologists to these mythological matters. When you read the great work of Fraser, The Golden Bough, first editions of the first volumes around 1890, you find a completely negative attitude toward the myths. He describes them as mistakes that were made by people who didn't know enough. His formula is that because ideas happen to be associated in people's minds, they imagine them to be associated in fact. They try to relate to the world in terms of their own imaging, and the imaging does not correspond to the world of fact. And he says, these old ideas are doomed to die with the new world of scientific discovery. Then we have the period of uh, Freud, the end of the 90s and the first two or three decades of this century. And he sees the myths as manifestations of the unconscious. Myths for Freud are, so to say, public dreams, and dreams are private myths. The only difference between a religion and a neurosis is that the religion is more popular. And the person with the neurosis feels isolated. But they are both manifestations of compulsive imaging out of the psyche. And the arts that depict these images are symptoms, as it were, of the psyche. And for Freud, this was all very morbid. Another point of view is that of Jung, who saw these rather as assistance to human life. Human consciousness is out of touch with the dynamics of the body, of the unconscious. And these dynamics are made manifest in the myth. They are, as Freud suggested, projections. But says Jung, through a dialogue with these, one can come to know one's own self, 
one can come to terms with the greater horizon of one's own self. And the society that dwells with these is feeding the deeper realms, the deeper strata of the human psyche. So that a positive attitude has been taken to the myths. They serve man. They create his world for him, but they do not correspond to any facts. Now, as I've said, many societies resist the truth and insist on their mythology. What happens to such societies? What one may say is the negative aspect of the impact of science on myth. What happens to the society that refuses to accept it? There is a history of this situation. As you know, the first beginnings, really, of hard-headed looking at things is with the Greeks of the seventh and sixth centuries. And by the period of Alexander, the fourth and third centuries, there was quite a scientific academy quite a scientific tradition, and the attitude of science had already been developed. Alexandrian science was carried across Asia, across Persia, as far as to India, and the influence went actually into India and into China from those areas. But every single one of the Oriental societies, that of Persia, and Iraq, that of India, that of China, had its revelation of truth. And the objective, realistic, inquisitive, experimental attitude of the Greek was rejected. One of the most interesting examples is the example of Islam, the Mohammedan world which shared with Rome and Europe the Greek heritage. And for the first couple of centuries of Islamic history, there was a wonderful fermentation of science. The 8th and 9th and 10th centuries in Islam are wonderful. And then the authority of the Quran, and the authority of the Sunnah, the group, consensus, the people who are always right, as Muhammad said, and are consequently always wrong, they won. And the scientific spirit was extruded. It was squeezed out, and Islam went dead. It's been dead since the 12th century. But the European spirit, which received the message openly, at least in certain of its important characters who were willing to fight their way through the resistance. Europe grew, and there is a line of wise men, of rishis, of sages, I would say from the period of Leonardo on down, which is unmatched in human history. And the magnitude of the revelation of the marvel of the universe that the West has brought into being, and the magnitude and richness 
of life here, something totally unknown in the realms that hung on to their old traditions. One finds that historical development in the Orient takes place as the result of invasions. Each group has its fixed tradition, and the one that wins establishes its tradition so that the history is in crises, whereas there is a much more organic development in the Western line, and this is the result of having accepted where the problem of truth. But now when one says truth, as a scientist, one is being sentimental. Because really the wonderful thing and the great challenge of the scientific revelation is that science itself does not pretend to be true. It does not pretend to be final. It is simply an organization of working hypotheses. Hypotheses that seem to take account of the facts as we now know them. But is there any intention to stay with these facts? No. There is a continuous quest for more, as though one were eager to grow, as though the life of man and of society here were to be based on new things, and on change, on, on transformation, rather than on petrifaction and rigidity. And so, we don't know anything. And even science itself is not the truth. It is only, so to say, an eagerness for the truth, no matter where it may lead. And so here again, we have a still greater revelation than that of anything the old texts have to say. The old texts comfort us with horizons. They tell us that a loving, a kind, a just father is out there. According to the scientific view, nobody knows what is out there, or if there is any out there at all. There's just a display of things that our senses bring to us, and we're dealing with those. But what lies beyond is an ultimate mystery. And it's a mystery that is so great that it is going to be inexhaustible in its revelations. And man has to be great enough to receive it. There is no thou shalt anymore. There is nothing you have to believe, nothing you have to do. And if you want to play the game of the Middle Ages, go ahead. But don't tell anybody else that that's the only game there is. Or if you want to play the game of the Chinese mandate of heaven, go ahead. Those are all lovely games. And the scientific game, after all, may not be any truer, but it's vaster, and it takes in a bigger range of facts and experience. So it is this terrific moment that we face. It's a moment that has been maturing, so to say, since the days of the Greeks. And since the days of the Second World War, it has gone through all the planet. When I was in India a couple of years ago, I was uh, in conversation with a fine old Indian gentleman. And uh, he said to me, what do you Western scholars now say about the dating of the Vedas? Now the Vedas, you must know, are the counterparts in India of Pentateuch. They are the scripture in which 
the cosmic word has been revealed. And I said, well, the dating of the Vedas has now been considerably reduced. The dating assigned is generally from 1500 to 1000 BC, whereas the Indians like to put it way, way back. And I said, furthermore, there has been found in India itself the remains of an earlier civilization than the Vedic, the civilization of Mohenjo-daro and the Indus Valley. Well, said the old gentleman, as an orthodox Hindu, I cannot believe that there's anything in the world earlier than the Vedas. I said, well, there you are. That's the end of this conversation. Now, uh, since I bring the theme of India in, let me tell you an Indian myth that seems to me to present the problem in a very uh, picturesque way. The problem, one might say, of our generation and the problem of all that we face in this generation. The story is of the gods and the demons. They decided to churn the milky ocean, that great cosmic ocean, for the butter of immortality, the elixir of immortality, ambrosia. And they took the cosmic mountain, the counterpart of Dante's purgatory, and they wrapped around it the cosmic serpent, the counterpart of the great Okeanos, the serpent that surrounds the world. And with the gods at the tail end, and the demons at the head end of the serpent, they churned the milky ocean. And they churned and churned and churned to get this elixir. And after they had churned for a thousand years, a terrific black poisonous smoke came up. In other words, they had broken through into something and they were getting the negative aspect of it first, which is what one always gets when one breaks into greater domains of power. And all the work had to stop. They were afraid of the terrific fallout. <laughs> so they had to ask among their number, who would be willing to absorb this so that the work could go on? Who would be the one who would give himself to humanity to the extent of absorbing the fallout? which was a function of a breakthrough into a higher range of power. And there was one deity among them named Shiva. And Shiva said, I will do it. Shiva was a great, great sage and a great, great yogi. And he had tremendous power over himself. And he just took that poison cloud in a cup and he just drank that right down. But by yoga, he stopped it at the level of his throat. And his throat turned blue, so he's been called Blue Throat ever since. And when that wonderful deed had been accomplished, the gods and demons went back to work, and they went on churning, and they went right on churning. And pretty soon, very, very wonderful things began to appear. The moon came up, the sun came up, certain medicines came up, a wonderful horse came up. An elephant with eight trunks came up. And finally, there came the cup with the elixir of immortality. So my ladies and gentlemen, 
I present this as a little parable for today and uh, an invitation to be willing to go with the truth wherever it may lead. Thank you. Professor Campbell begins this lecture both humorously and poetically, recalling the ravishing beauty of the Ptolemaic solar system, the music of the spheres, and the cosmic hierarchical progression of ensoulment. Social life was ordered along those lines, too, if one followed the laws, customs, and practices of society, one would be in accord not only with the society, but with the entire universe as well. The model on which society was conceived. Of course, this user-friendly model of the cosmos was, to use Campbell's words, destroyed by science. Professor Campbell mentioned the influence of Dante's Divine Comedy on Columbus, how the geography of the Inferno could, through Columbus's salt-rhymed eyes, be seen in the features of the Caribbean islands and the eastern shores of South America. Columbus may have even believed that his voyage was the physical realization of the spiritual journey Dante described in his poem. Certainly, the Roman Church liked to imagine Columbus as rather like a new Paul, an apostle to the new world, and it, the Church, was the rightful sovereign of the souls encountered in the new world. Beginning with Columbus's voyages— the old mythological geography was eventually displaced by fact, as other intrepid sailor merchants like Amerigo Vespucci and explorers like Ferdinand Magellan continued to fill out the map of the world. Fifty years or so after Columbus, empiricism was gathering more and more momentum, and Copernicus proposed to replace the geocentric model of the universe with a heliocentric model. The idea that the sun is stationary and around it the earth revolved was, and still is, I might add, profoundly counterintuitive, as the earth seems not to move at all as we stand upon it, while the sun and the other stars seem to be in constant motion. Perhaps an even larger obstacle to the acceptance of Copernicus's model of the heavens is that it displaced earth from the center of the solar system, not to mention the universe. And this was a tremendous blow to the human ego that thought itself to be the center of and the reason for the entirety of creation. It took another 200 years or so to realize that the Earth's sun was not in any way the center of the universe. As an aside, I find it interesting to note that Sigmund Freud said of his own theories that they appealed to him because they, like the theories of Darwin and Copernicus, tended to diminish man's pride. Professor Campbell notes that the religious experience of awe before the universe has been exceeded utterly by the revelations of modern science. Awe is an emotion we often associate with religion or spirituality. It's evoked in the face of something vast, something that compels us to revise existing psychological schemas in order to accommodate or comprehend the experience. There have been studies that show the experience of awe is positively associated with scientific thinking, and that scientists who have a deeper understanding of how science works also possess a greater ability to experience awe. Interestingly enough, 
the capacity for awe also predicts a rejection of creationism. The pre-scientific mind could not have imagined a universe with such magnitude, such dimension, such grandeur, while at the same time expressing such logical consistency. The medieval imagination of the universe, as beautiful and baroque as it may have been, can hardly compare to the breathtakingly sublime contemporary model of the universe that modern science presents. But that old scriptural rendering of the world and the cosmos does not die easily. Vestiges of it are stumbled upon even now. Young Earth creationists, for example, insist that the world is no more than 10,000 years old, and they make mind-numbing arguments in its support, arguments such as the geological record is the devil's parody of the six days of creation described in Genesis, and it's designed to pervert and discredit the Christian vision, or that dinosaurs disappeared as a consequence of the Great Flood. Often, individual sensory perception is used to refute science. Another cringeworthy example is those who insist that the earth is flat. Religious reactionaries have performed the most astonishing feats of mental gymnastics in order to avoid overhauling their beliefs. Here's just one representative example. Cortez noted similarities between Aztec and Catholic traditions. One explanation proffered to explain the parallels was that St. Thomas reached the Americas and spread the Christian message. For instance, there's a Facebook page called the Fatima Center, and it describes itself as, quote, a grassroots association of Catholic priests and laypeople, the type specifically permitted by the Code of Canon Law, formed in 1978 in response to Our Lady of Fatima's message of hope and warning to mankind, unquote. On their Facebook page, St. Thomas is described as an inveterate world-traveling missionary, even visiting India and China. They go on to say, and I'm quoting once more here, It would not, therefore, have been such an extraordinary matter to have followed these nations in their migrations eastward to Polynesia and even as far as the Americas. But suppose that, for the sake of argument, it be granted that human means of transportation from Palestine or from European coasts to America were unknown during the lifetime of the Apostle. We should then by no means rule out the possibility of a miraculous intervention of God for the purpose of spreading the true faith." Unquote. Now, this old traditional understanding of existence was once again shattered after Charles Darwin published On the Origins of the Species in 1859. Darwin's theories of evolution revolutionized fields of history and geology. They laid the groundwork for the field of anthropology. And Darwin remains perhaps one of the most influential human beings in history. And after Darwin, the old scriptural narratives of life would not be able to stand. But Darwin did not present his evidence gleefully. He remained a troubled theist and wrote to his closest friend, the botanist Joseph Hooker, quote, It is as if one were confessing to a murder. But nonetheless, Professor Campbell says, referring to the young boy at the beginning of his lecture, myth is a theory that could not be factualized. 
The process of adjusting one's worldview to align with the best available evidence is, in itself, a very challenging value to maintain. One of the reasons such a perspective is challenging is that encountering new facts can be extremely disturbing, even traumatic. Secondly, science doesn't pretend, Campbell says, to be either true nor final. And there is a continuous quest for new information and new facts. This is a demanding, often bruising perspective to hold because it crashes into other exalted human values such as comfort, predictability, and stability, values of which we are often loath to let go. Intellectual humility is often, well, humiliating to the point to which uncomfortable or inconvenient facts are ignored or denigrated. But societies that see science as a threat don't survive for very long. Professor Campbell tells us that science provides a greater revelation than any of the old sacred texts give us. There is no bounded universe, he tells us, no final truth. And its ultimate mystery is so great that it is inexhaustible in its revelations. And man has to be just as great in order to receive them. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke put it this way in these select passages from his poem, The Man Watching. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated, as things do by some immense storm, we would become great too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. Whoever was beaten went away proud and strengthened and great from that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows, by being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next month with another Joseph Campbell lecture on Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff. Executive Producer, Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.